Brad's friend Marky died of cancer and Brad cried. Brad had spent his life doing Zen, but he never told his friend anything about Zen. Not that he was an asshole, he just fucking forgot. So Brad wrote Marky a letter and it made him feel better, little better. Then Brad wrote some more. Soon he had letters by the score and these are his letter to a dead friend about Zen. Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen. Today's theme song was sung by Magura of the Polish punk band Crisis. We depend on your donations to support this podcast. To donate, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That's hardcorezen.info slash donate. Today's letter was read on October 12th, 2019 at the Highland Square branch of the Akron, Ohio Public Library. You know, I forgot how it, it's it's weird for me when I give talks in, in Akron because mostly I give talks and I'm just looking at people I don't know at all and now, now I'm seeing people I know in the audience so that's a little a little uh, <coughs> odd for me so we'll see how we get through this. Dear Marky, I'm back in Akron again. Tomorrow I'm supposed to speak at the Highland Square branch of the Akron Public Library. They put me on at 11 in the morning. It's a Saturday. I don't think I know anyone who is awake at 11 a.m. on Saturdays. I'm playing a Zero Defects show tonight. I don't even know if I'll be awake at 11. I hope somebody shows up. Being back here in Akron started me thinking about when I first got interested in Zen Buddhism. Did I ever tell you about that? Probably not. I tell the story of how I got into Zen all the time. It's in my first book, Hardcore Zen, and I'm often asked to talk about that book, even though it's now 15 years old. I don't want to tell you the same story I've told the world a couple hundred times. Let me see if there's another way to tell it. In the early 80s, Buddhism in America was nothing like the industry it's become these days, especially in Ohio. You might have been able to find one of the books D.T. Suzuki wrote about Zen in the 1950s at Walden Books in Summit Mall or at the B. Daltons in Rolling Acres. If you were lucky, you might have even stumbled across a copy of Shunryu Suzuki's Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind or one of Alan Watts's books about Zen. Maybe. Way in the back of the store where they keep the books about UFOs and Bigfoot. In those days, you didn't have Lisa Simpson proclaiming herself a Buddhist. The Dalai Lama wasn't appearing on network TV. You didn't see magazines about mindfulness at the checkout stand at the Giant Eagle supermarket. They weren't slapping the word Zen on products ranging from sushi to sleeping aids to pills that claim to help you last all night in bed. I've actually seen those. <laughs> it's funny. There are people on the internet these days worrying themselves sick over the idea that Buddhism in America is too white. They're upset that the racial demographics at American Zen centers don't match the overall demographics of the country as a whole. This always amuses me because when I started getting into it, the notion that anyone who was not Asian would practice Buddhism was still a novelty. There weren't enough non-Asians into Buddhism that anyone was worried about the racial breakdown of those of us who were. There aren't any statistics available, 
But my guess would be that there were about 20 or 25 non-Asian Buddhist teachers active in the entire world at the time I met my first Zen teacher. That I, of all people, encountered one of these rare birds never ceases to amaze me. I'll bet every non-Asian Buddhist on earth at the time I first got into Buddhism, not just teachers, but anyone who practiced Buddhism and wasn't Asian, I bet all of them could have fit into the Cleveland Agora with room to spare. <laughs> Nowadays, they have annual meetings where dozens of American Buddhist teachers of all races gather in fancy hotels and talk about how business is going. Times have changed. And of all the places you'd imagine that someone might encounter a Zen Buddhist teacher in those days, Kent, Ohio would probably not have even made the list. The few Buddhist places in America that welcomed non-Asians at the time were mostly way the heck out in California. There was one in upstate New York and one in Minneapolis, as well as a few others scattered around. But it wouldn't have even occurred to me in those days to make a trip all the way out to California or even to upstate New York just to visit a Zen center. I was a punk, after all. Or at least I played in a punk band the mighty Zero Defects who I played with on Friday and who will play a few hours after my talk at the library across the street at Annabelle's. So you can all come to that. <laughs> Zen was old hippie garbage as far as us punks were concerned. Some of us punks might have had a bit of respect for traditional Zen as practiced in the Far East, but when it came to any American who said he was into Zen, most of us would have laughed in his face. But me, I was secretly into the old hippie garbage. I liked a lot of psychedelic rock from that era. I especially adored the heavy stuff like Blue Cheer and Iron Butterfly. Plus, I had lived in Africa and had been exposed to a bit of Eastern religion there as a child. Kenya, where we lived, had a lot of Indian immigrants. One of my dad's closest friends in those days was Indian. Plus, I loved Indian food, which you could not get in Akron at the time. When I started attending Kent State University in the fall of 1982, I was thinking hard about the meaning of life. I was a philosophy major for a short while, but I was frustrated that KSU only offered classes in Western philosophy. I wanted to know what the deal was with those weird Hindu gods that I saw pictures of at my dad's friend's house. I was into the Beatles, too, and they had gone to India to meditate with the Maharishi but there weren't any classes at KSU about that stuff. Then one semester, I saw a class called Zen Buddhism in the KSU catalog. I had wanted to find something Indian, but I knew that Buddha was from India and that Zen was the Japanese form of an Indian religion. Zen Buddhism was as close as anything KSU offered to what I actually wanted to study, so I signed up. And get this, Marky. That class about Zen Buddhism was a not-for-credit class offered at what KSU called the Experimental College. That was the university's designation for a set of strange classes they weren't quite ready to give college credit for. The KSU Experimental College also offered a class called Intro to Parapsychology, for example. In the early 80s in Ohio, Buddhism was seen as so freaky-deaky you couldn't get academic credit at Kent State for studying it. That's a great example of how the American attitude towards Buddhism has changed. I was so impressed with what I learned in that class that I kept on doing zazen meditation even after the semester was over, 
In fact, it ended up becoming the major focus of my life. In those days, I was not in the habit of telling people I meditated and studied Zen. You probably would have laughed at me if I told you about it at the time. I don't know if you were even aware of my interest in Zen before my book Hardcore Zen came out in 2004. I don't think we ever discussed it before then. If we did, I don't remember. I wasn't exactly trying to keep my practice a secret. It's just that I didn't want to be one of those people who goes around wearing sandals, stinking of patchouli, and proclaiming that he's into meditation. I never liked those kinds of people. I still don't. And yet I meditated every single day, once in the morning and once at night. There were a few stretches in those early years when I gave up meditating, but I always went back to it after a little while. Days when I did my zazen were always just a little bit better than days when I didn't. My head didn't feel so fuzzy and buzzy when I did zazen. When I stopped doing it, the noise and fogginess came back. After a few years, I gave up on giving up zen. I knew I was stuck with it. But it still wasn't something I defined myself by. I did zazen every day, but it wasn't the kind of lifestyle bobble that Buddhism seems to be for a lot of folks these days. I know a guy in California who told me that at one point in his life, he went surfing every day. He got very good at it, but, he told me, he never considered himself a surfer. A surfer was one of those dudes who bleaches his hair, wears flip-flops, and talks like the guys from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. My friend was never like that. He just really enjoyed surfing. That's kind of how I was with Zen. I didn't want to be known around Akron as Mr. Zen, even though studying and practicing Zen was probably the number one thing in my private life. Lots of other stuff was going on too, though. After the first incarnation of Zero Defects broke up, I sent some tapes of my neo-psychedelic music to a small record label in New York called Midnight Records. They liked what they heard and signed me up. I put out five records with that label under the name Dementia 13. When those failed to set the world on fire, I took a job in Takaoka, Japan, teaching English. After a year of pretending to teach English to sleeping Japanese high school students, I got a job with Tsuburaya Productions, the company founded by the man who invented Godzilla. They made a TV show called Ultraman, which I had watched on Channel 43 when I was a kid and really loved. I moved to Tokyo to work for them, and it was in Tokyo that I met another Zen teacher named Gudo Nishijima. After about seven years of me studying with him, Nishijima Roshi asked me to ordain as a monk and become a certified Zen Buddhist teacher. He said he was willing to do the ceremonies and the paperwork necessary to make it official. Up until he suggested it, I had never given any serious thought to teaching Zen. After all, who was I, a punk rock kid from Ohio, to teach such an ancient venerable tradition? But Nishijima Roshi talked me into it, and now here I am, back in Akron, to talk to people about my newest book about Zen. These days, Buddhism is everywhere. Mindfulness, a Buddhist practice, don't let anybody tell you different, is being sold to major corporations and schools as the solution to all sorts of problems such as absenteeism, <laughs> okay, forget it, absenteeism and low product productivity. I can't talk today. The word Zen is so hip that I called my third book Zen Wrapped in Karma Dipped in Chocolate after a line in a yogurt commercial. 
But how many people who talk about Zen are ready to actually do Zen practice? How many of them are willing to devote an hour a day to sitting still and staring at a blank wall? Even though there are lots more folks doing that now than there ever were when I first started out, uh, there still aren't that many. Zen Buddhists do not proselytize. We never try to convert anyone to Zen Buddhism. Zen is a practice you have to take up because you really want to take it up. It's not something someone else can convince you to do. If you're not convinced yourself, then you're not going to put in the effort. Zen is a practice, not a religion. There would be no more sense in trying to convert someone to Zen Buddhism than there would be in trying to, let's say, convert someone into a practitioner of karate or judo. You wouldn't go around knocking on people's doors trying to spread the good news of karate. You just set up a dojo and hope people come to do the practice. I'm not sure what to make of the popularity of Buddhism these days. I suppose it's better than when it was just something a few oddballs like me were into. I mean, at least there's an audience for my books, which is nice. But I really don't know how many people go from reading the kind of books on Buddhism that I write to actually doing the practice. Maybe it's about the same as the proportion of people who watch Jackie Chan or Bruce Lee movies and then go on to actually study the martial arts. I have no illusions that I'm going to save the world by bringing people the good news of Zen. But I think maybe there are people out there who would appreciate the philosophy and practice if it was presented in a way that made sense to them. I was lucky enough to find a teacher who could explain Zen in terms that an angry teenage punk rocker could understand. Those old DT Suzuki books wouldn't have done it for me. They were too academic, too intellectual. The normal sorts of Zen centers wouldn't have done it for me either, especially the really big ones they have nowadays. I've been to the San Francisco Zen Center a bunch of times. It's a nice place, but the people there these days seem far more interested in being politically correct than in studying Zen. Maybe I'm being a little hyperbolic there, but I really worry that Zen is starting to get lost in some of these places or take a back seat to other concerns. What I want to do is reach the people who are really interested in taking up Zen practice for realsies. My books have enough entertainment value to be en engaging to people who just want to get a taste for what Zen is about, and I don't mind at all if people read them without ever getting into Zen practice. But what I'm really hoping to reach is that small proportion of the audience who are going to take it seriously. These generally are not the kinds of people who turn up at parties saying they're into Zen in the hopes that it might make them seem cool. Rather, they're the kinds of people who look at this world and realize that things are desperately screwed up. They're the kind of people that notice that most of the solutions offered by people who say they can fix you up are nonsense. And yet they're the kind who also notice that life is something special. They're not cynical nihilists who want to burn everything down, even though some of them might look like they are. I probably looked like that myself. These are the kinds of people who want to find a way to fully appreciate life as the amazing thing they know it can be. I'm not sure if any of those people will be at the Akron Public Library tomorrow morning, but just in case they are, I want to be there and say a few things to them. And I'm happy to entertain the people who just showed up to hear a good story, too. Wish me luck, Marky. Brad. Do you, do you get a chord with how it's being used in the corporate world? Yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, I see it all the time. 
Um, in your experience since you traveled through mm -hmm. Europe and you were in Africa, and have you noticed that same trend in the other parts of the world? Probably the people who do that, they get some good out of it, and so, okay. But I do think it's often missing the point. And I suppose the point that it's usually missing, and, and usually every time Buddhism is translated into something else, the thing that they miss is the ethical uh, teachings. And it's become so, it's become weird because there are actually books, at, and you can go online and you can read people who seem to be authoritative saying that. Zen in particular usually, or sometimes Buddhism as a whole, ha has no ethical teachings or doesn't, doesn't worry about morality or something like that. And I go, what the hell, <laughs> what, are you, what are you talking about? You know, it's all over. You know, it's one of the strongest foundational things in all of this teaching is, is this very ethical uh, idea that uh, goes with the ten Buddhist precepts in, in Zen, which are, which are a bit like the Ten Commandments. But uh, it's very strongly emphasized, and, and I think a lot of that's important because you can develop certain abilities through a focused Zen practice or other meditation practices that can give you some powers. <laughs> you know, not, not like powers to levitate things like Yoda in Star Wars or anything like that. At least that hasn't happened for me yet. At least I don't tell you about this. Um, <laughs> But, but the, the power to, one of the things you'll develop I if you do a meditation practice is, almost everybody gets this to a certain extent, is the power to kind of learn how to manipulate people. <laughs> I mean, you don't learn how to, you could use it that way. But you realize that, that all of us are, are fundamentally the same. I mean, you can say that, and everybody knows that, but if you do a deep meditation practice, you get very deeply into it, and you realize that the level at which we are very much alike, every human being on Earth, is, is very profound and very deep. And if you want to, you could, you could use that to, to manipulate somebody, you know, to, to really have an influence over somebody and, and to take advantage. And, and it happens more frequently than I'd like to admit. I mean, a lot of these, uh, if you've heard of some of the sex scandals that sometimes go on that raid, you know, like little wildfires throughout the Buddhist world every few years, nobody talks about it, but I think a lot of that is people who discover their ability to manipulate others, you know, particularly in the sexual stuff, you know, and you find you can just reach somebody and, and, uh, and they don't even know you're doing it and, and, and suddenly, you know, <laughs> they're ready to do anything. Um, and uh, and, I, and I think that's happening quite often. Uh, and, uh, and, and the reason we have these ethical teachings is, so, is, is because that was understood 2,000 years ago when people first started, 2,500 years ago when people first started doing this practice, it became apparent that there were certain, certain things that came with it and that you had to have, if you were going to practice Zen, you had to have an ethical foundation. You had to. And the, the martial arts teachers do the same thing. You know, good martial arts teachers do the same thing. They understand that you have to have a, a certain ethical uh, stance or ethical foundation before you do these practices because they're dangerous otherwise. That's the thing that, that worries me a little bit when I see, uh, see it being kind of 
you know, take a class in mindfulness, you know, and I'm going, oh, you know, you're just turning mindfulness, you know, loose on all these people, and they don't know, they don't know where it's going to lead, <laughs> but people who are experienced in it kind of know where it could lead, so, yeah. What's the difference between Zen and Taoism? Oh, the difference between Zen, Zen and Taoism is, is pretty great, depending on who you ask. So, uh, it, you, if you read uh, sort of introductory textbooks like on world religions, one of the things they will often tell you as a shorthand for explaining Zen in Buddhist context is saying that Buddhism was an Indian religion and, uh, and it became quite popular in India. And when it moved into China, it became mixed with Taoism, and that is the foundations of Zen. And I think as a sort of shorthand explanation, I guess that's okay, but it's not, I don't think it's really true. Uh, and the, the best way I can give uh, as an example of why that confusion is there, it would be like saying that Zen, in order to to uh, make itself understood by Americans became mixed with Christianity. And there is a sense of that happening these days because people who talk about Zen or talk about Buddhism in general, but let's say about Zen, the Zen form specifically, are forced to use Christian terms. Like I, I wrote a book called There Is No God and He Is Always With You about the concept of God and how the concept of God works into the Buddhist framework because if you read Buddhism, it's very easy to think that Buddhism is a religion in which there is zero concept of God. I would argue that that's not quite true. There, there isn't a concept in Buddhism of a, you know, an old man with a beard who sits on the throne and judges you after you die kind of God. But in Buddhism, there is a, there is a sense of there being some sort of overall intelligence that pervades the universe, that the universe is not a dead thing, that it's a, it's a living thing, and that we were all part of a living thing. And in, in some ways, that's very much analogous to a, a different sort of concept of God. So as far as Taoism is concerned, when Buddhism started getting translated into Chinese, the word that they used for the Buddhist way uh, is Tao. So they would, they would use the word Tao, uh, and, and they use certain other linguistic concepts from Taoism to, to make Buddhism understood, and the Zen people were probably the most, the ones who did it the most. And a, a lot of the costuming changed, because the Taoist monks liked to wear black, and the Buddhist monks in India would wear, because you've probably seen some of the Nepalese and Burmese and, and other Indian Buddhist monks sometimes around who wear the orange stuff, and that's what they wore in India. And when it got to China, the Chinese really weren't into those orange things, so they, they, turned, they wore black robes. The, they wore the Taoist robes. And, and they started picking up certain other aspects of the Taoist uh, stuff, but philosophically, stylistically, the Zen people took from Tao a, a little bit in the, in the sense of Indian, Indian philosophy is very, very wordy. I, I don't know if anybody's ever studied Indian philosophy, but it's, it's incredibly wordy. And, and the Indian culture seems to favor you know, ex explanations on top of explanations on top of other explanations and just making these giant, you know, treatises on things. And that's what Buddhism was sort of 
doing in India, when it came to China, everything got shortened. <laughs> you know, they, they tried to shorten it down to like a single sentence. And that was, I think, an influence of Taoism, because the Taoists did that too. Uh, so instead of giving these long, you know, boring stories with the different permutations and different philosophers adding their two cents in and whatever, they, uh, the Zen people truncated everything down to, to very short sort of aphorisms, which, which I think, which is real nice for me because I never could get into reading those long, you know, long stories, the long Indian stories, and I, I much prefer the, the Chinese and, and Japanese stuff. The Japanese kind of picked up on that, uh, of making it very short, which has the nice the, the nice sort of result of that is if you study Zen, you don't really have to be that smart, <laughs> which, which I like. Uh, you know, you don't, you don't have to be you know, like a scholar, really. You can be, and there are plenty of Zen scholars out there, but I'm not one of them. And, and I like the fact that, that a lot of it's very short and, and to the point. I'm from India. Okay. <laughs> um, I came into this country, say, about 40 years ago. Okay. And but I was appalled, too, because I didn't know anything about non-Asians yeah. promoting Buddhism. Yeah, must be weird, yeah. Or for what, but believe me, uh -huh. if they hadn't started this, I wouldn't have learned further. Really? I didn't learn much in India. That's interesting, yeah. 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 But, you know, I am very grateful for non-Asians starting this movement. Caucasians or anybody, yeah, yeah. even some Japanese, but I am grateful that they started te teachings of Buddha or whatever for that matter, yeah, yeah, yeah. anything Asian. It so is really interesting, yeah. Yeah. Because I noticed, like, I, I, I've said this, like, after living in Japan, uh, uh, the average American who has studied Buddhism probably knows more about Buddhism than most Japanese people do you know they th somebody like me I, I would tell my Japanese friends stuff about Buddhism that they didn't know right. you know which I thought was funny <laughs> you know yeah like, that's what I said yeah. yes but they do know a lot so yeah. I'm all praised for them well thank you yeah I, I think it's I, I think it's just the natural course of things you know these these philosoph if it's a good philosophy it it will appeal to people outside of of the place where it you know was born you know and and i think that's why buddhism appeals to people and and, and it it crosses all sorts of boundaries you know and, and all of these things like yoga and some of the um vedanta and things like that they they they're good philosophies and they appeal to people and and uh, it's great it's great that they're indian people in Akron. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> really, because I, I was serious. I used to love Indian food, and then we had it in Kenya, and then we came back to Akron. I'm like, Where, you can't get a samosa anywhere, but now you can. And if I knew, I would have brought some. Oh, great. <laughs> Thank you. You have a very interesting, uh, eclectic background. Uh, what were some of your other interests earlier uh, when you were growing up? Oh. Yeah, nobody asks that. Um, I, well, I'll tell you, probably the first place that Buddhism planted any sort of seed in me was 
science fiction, particularly uh, Philip K. Dick, the novelist. I loved Philip K. Dick's novels and, and uh, during high school, like they were all out of print and I had to search all over the place to get copies, but I managed to read almost all of his novels when I was still in high school. And, and he had a lot of interest. I don't think he ever practiced uh, any sort of Buddhism, but he had a lot of interest in it and he would stick things in his books. So that, that was there and science fiction in general was a huge interest. And then the punk rock thing. I, I, one of the things I wrote in Hardcore Zen was about the, the weird intersection between punk rock and Zen, which I don't think either side knew that they had. Uh, the, the, sort of, the sort of punk rock scene that I got into in Akron in the early 80s was very much influenced, very much influenced by what came out of Washington D.C., which was this sort of it was sort of punk rock with a very ethical uh, stance that they took. So they were really interested in, you know, there was this straight edge movement of not doing drugs or drinking or having illicit sex and and all this stuff, and it it, it almost sounds like trying to follow the Buddhist precepts. Uh, that was not everybody practiced it, but. Uh, People sort of knew the band I was in as uh, Zero Defects as a straight edge band, but I, d I think I was the only one who was sort of straight edge at the time. And I was only really straight edge, you know, in that I didn't like getting drunk and, and, and I didn't know how to have illicit sex. <laughs> I didn't know how to approach women, so, so, I was, uh, so that was, you know, out for me too. Um, but, uh, but, but, um, but I thought that was a good a good sort of ethic, and that was that was in there too. I wanted to ask you about the intersection of your Zen practice uh -huh. with your creative and musical pursuits, and uh, uh, something you just recently wrote in your blog brought uh -huh. this into focus. Your milkshake blog. Oh, um, oh yeah. <laughs> and how do you how do you separate, or how do you find the difference between pursuing those things? and chasing them or hooking oh, into yeah. the desire to create the music. Mm -hmm. It's a problem I've had between my practice and creativity. Yeah. And how much you're flogging your ego and how much you're you know, it's hard to say, you know, how much your how much ego is going into the creation of a piece of music or, you know, a piece of art and how much is genuine creativity. Like just in general, you know, that's that's sometimes hard to hard to uh, to make the distinction. Uh, you know, this is going to sound like a sort of cop-out answer maybe, but I, I, my sort of way of dealing with this is I just don't worry about it anymore. You know, I, I used to be concerned about that stuff, and now I kind of just do what I enjoy doing and just let that guide me. My, my teacher, Nishijima Roshi, was good for that, and Tim McCarthy, too, was good for that, because they kind of say, you know, you pursuing what feels right is sometimes the best way you know and and I think that's true you just kind of you kind of do what you do and and that there might be a certain amount of ego in it is sort of that's that's just gonna happen you know there's a certain amount of ego that goes into even just normal meditation practice you know most of us who do it and I count myself at the, as one of these wanted something you know we wanted something I, I you know I don't know exactly what I wanted I wanted my my brain to be a little less 
fuzzy and I was very concerned about the nature of, of life and the universe and I thought well maybe I can figure it out you know so <coughs> there was that pursuit not the purest thing I suppose one could have and and so yeah I just I just kind of let it be there because you're never gonna in that blog I did something that I don't normally do which is I used the standard version of the Four Noble Truths, you know, all life is suffering, the cause of suffering is desire, the, the cutting off desire is the way to cut off suffering, and the Eightfold Path is the way to cut off desire, I think is the usual formulation. My teacher hated that formulation, and, um, and he had another way of putting it. So, but what he would also say, one of the reasons he didn't like that formulation is he would say it's impossible to cut off desire, you know, it's, it's, if you put it that way, you're just asking people to do the impossible, which you're, you're always going to desire something, you know, even if it's something basic as the desire to breathe or eat, you know, you're going to have a desire there, but, but all of us have desires beyond that too. Right after Nishijima Roshi died, he died in I think 2012, right after he died but before I got the word that he died, I had a dream in which Nishijima Roshi uh, uh, is talking to me and he's saying, you know, you're, you're scattering your stuff too much, you really need to focus, you know, you really need to focus on the Zen thing. Uh, if you want to do it right and you shouldn't be doing all these other things and so every once in a while I remember that and I don't you know I, I am skeptical of anything uh, that comes under the heading of psychic phenomenon I, I say skeptical because I don't completely reject it but I'm also I also think it's so easy to get fooled in those areas that I'm I'm reluctant to, to, to think that my teacher himself appeared to me in a dream but the timing of it is such that you know it's really weird that I had this dream after he died but before I heard that he died so I do think about that and and I sort of try to make everything into a practice somehow you know even playing with zero defects I kind of look at that as a sort of practice and and it's it's a kind of a funny sort of practice but I try you know when we're playing I try to uh, get completely into that you know and leave everything else uh, out of it and just try to really really focus on doing a damn good zero defects show you know because I think that's the sort of Zen way to do a zero defects show you know is to, is to just go you know right into it and I think actually the other the other guys in the band do the same thing but that you know they don't have that same reason for doing it I suppose so you mentioned earlier that you lost a close friend of yours and lost your teacher and yeah I'm curious, how do you feel um, that like following Zen practices for many years has changed the way that you confront and like cope with the death process? Yeah, that's a that's a good question and also a hard one. Uh, this this current book is about that, and the other one that I mentioned, Zen wrapped in karma, dipped in chocolate, is about uh, when my mother and my grandmother both died in the same year, uh, within a few months of each other. One at the beginning of the year and one at the end of the year, uh, and. And that knocked me for a loop because I also split up from my then wife at that, that same year and lost my job with Tsuburaya Productions the same year, so it all happened. And, um, and I was already into this thing. I, I wasn't touring internationally because this is 2007, so I was touring, but I was doing a lot of stuff around America, so I would, get, I would just load up my car. Uh, with some books in the back and travel to a place and do and do talks and lead retreats and stuff and I was going all over the place 
and I was doing that while my while my mom and my grandmother were dying, same as I was doing uh, the tour of Europe as my friend was dying. So I was I was in the midst of it. So I'm I'm actually required to come out. You know, the day the day that uh, that this friend of mine died. No, the following day, because I did have a day off the day I heard he died, but the following day I had to go give a talk about Zen. It was kind of a, a crummy gig uh, for me. Um, and, uh, I mean, just for the obvious reasons, and also because these the, the people I was talking to seemed a little bit oblivious. You know, I was trying to tell them what happened to me in my, my, in my personal life, and they seemed completely oblivious to that, and they were like, what do you think of Dogen's meaning of, of uh, being in time? And I'm like, screw being in time my friend has died and then, you know um, so you don't I'm just I'm exaggerating a little bit but but it's it does help like I, I you know as a practical thing when my mom died my dad went to pieces which is understandable and and my sister kind of did too and I ended up being at my dad's house he lived in the suburbs of Dallas at the time and I had to do all the the bear well we did a cremation I had to do all the cremation arrangements and I could do it because I had this sort of thing to draw on because when you're sitting when you're doing zazen zazen is a very simple practice so you just you're just it's called just sitting in Japanese shikantaza and that's what you're doing. You're not, you're not trying to focus, you're not trying to be mindful, you're not trying to do anything. This is the hardest part for a lot of people when they practice, is the idea of you're not trying to do anything but just sit still. You know, and, and don't even worry about you know, what you're going to learn from this or get enlightened about it or how you're going to have a takeaway. Just try to sit still for, for 30 minutes and do nothing else but sit still. Um, and that sounds like it might be easy, but it's not. You know, if you're trying to just fully immerse yourself in in the practice of sitting still, and so I'd done that for years, and a lot of stuff comes up when you try to sit still because it's almost like your mind is in there, like a like a little kid going, "Hey, look at me, look at me," you know. And 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 if if the easy stuff you know doesn't work and isn't getting your attention, it's like I was just uh, visiting my friend who has a kitten. Uh, yesterday, and and if anybody had a kitten, you know how kittens are. The you know they'll try a little, they'll nip at your toe, and if that doesn't work, you know, pretty soon they're scratching your face off and everything else, trying to get your attention. And that's what the mind does when you're sitting zazen. So, so I was, I I had done it enough of of just just sitting there in a you know either at home or in a temple somewhere with my mind raging out of control and throwing up all sorts of stuff you know it's like you're you're you know i don't didn't know that i remembered my toilet training bah! you know and it's all there and all this stuff is is in there and and, and this thing that, that that guy said to me in 7th grade bah! you know it's there again you know and, and anything that's you know the wor- the worst you know the worst fantasy you ever had about doing the most unsavory thing you know suddenly that's up there Um, and you're going oh my god I can't believe I even thought of that so I'd had that experience and so just you know everybody sort of freaking out and my mom being dead and having to get everything you know worked up so that we could get her cremated 
they like lost her body. I mean, that was that was the craziest part of that that day. Is um, nobody knew where my mom's body was for about uh, two full days, and I kept making these calls. You know, like, well, we're we're not sure. We think it was shipped to you know. Jesus Christ, that's my mom. You know. <laughs> yeah, well, we're 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 looking for her. She's uh, she's in the inventory. You know. You know, and we, you know, the box they sent us, they were like, you know, with her in it. We never opened it up because we're like, I don't think we want to open this up. But sometimes I think about it and I wonder, I wonder if that was even her, you know. <laughs> they might have sent us somebody else for all we know. We might have had a, we might have done a cremation ceremony for, for some stranger for all I know. Um, they, send, they send you the body in what looks like a pizza box, like a gigantic pizza box. You know, this cardboard box and because I guess that burns really well in the in the crematorium, um, but um, but yeah, my gosh. So so that that helped, and just kind of um, you know I I was with this this one friend who's the main person I'm writing about in the book. I spent two different weeks with him. I don't know if it was a full week or more like five or some days. But I went and visited him two times after he'd gotten diagnosed with cancer. Uh, one of those times, I had already planned to go hang out with him, uh, and and uh, and he didn't even know then. And then he got the 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 call from his doctor, and I was and and he was like, "Well, don't cancel the trip. Uh, I still feel fine." So I went and hung out with him, and he knew, you know, the prognosis at that point was not good, but it could have gone either way. And then, uh, I don't know how many months later, I went and visited, visited him again, and by then the prognosis was looking really bad. Although he was still, he was still in good spirits and, and, you know, in, and in decent shape. Um, he could still like hang out and do stuff. He wasn't bedridden or anything like that, but his doctors were telling him that, yeah, it's, it's progressing and there's nothing we can do about it. And, um, and, and having had that practice behind me, it, 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 I don't think I could have gotten through that. I, I don't, maybe somebody else could have gotten through that without this practice. I couldn't have, you know. I, uh, I needed to kind of keep reminding myself of how to, how to kind of, uh, you, you know, with emotional stuff in Zen, it's, it's not a matter of, it's not a matter of trying to not have any emotional response. It's a matter of trying to allow an emotional response to come up and not necessarily do anything about it. So I would have these emotional responses come up when I'm sitting next to my friend watching a documentary about um, Bob Guccione. That's one of the things we did when we were hanging out. Oh God, and this is in the book. One of the things he said to me was, I just thought it was so indicative of his sense of humor. They, at near the end of the documentary, said, Bob Guccione died of cancer when he was 83 years old. And my friend sitting next to me and, and the couch going, that's not dying of cancer when you die when you're 83. <laughs> <laughs> because he was 48 at the time, you know, so. How important do you think it is to have a teacher if you're studying mm -hmm. Buddhism or yeah, or have a community of people you do with? It's a question I get a lot. That's why I'm smiling, that the, the idea of how important it is to have a teacher or a community to practice. Do, there's a thing Dogen wrote called Gakudo Yojinshu, which doesn't matter, it's just a bunch of Japanese, but it's sort of, I think that translates to sort of like points in studying the way, um, something like that. That's probably wrong, but anyway. It's, it's a bits of advice that he gives for people who want to study Zen. 
And one of the things he is very emphatic about is you need a teacher. Uh, Dogen, Dogen just says that in, 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 in no uncertain terms. And I was lucky enough that I found two teachers that I liked. I, I was not very fond. Actually, Tim's little community in Kent was fine. I liked all those people. Uh, Nishijima Roshi's community in Tokyo, there were some people in there who I thought were a nightmare. And one of them is still a nightmare for me uh, on the internet sometimes. And, um, uh, yeah, and if any of you follow Facebook, you may have seen some of this stuff from, from that guy because he's very <coughs> active on Facebook. So, so I liked Nishijima, but I didn't, I didn't I, I, some of his community I did like, and, uh, and they're still good friends of mine, but, but there were certain people in there that I was just like, oh my God, I don't want to, I don't want to, I, I would almost not go because they would be like, oh, those guys are going to be there, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't have anything to do with these people. So I'm aware that it can be a thing and, and, and that finding a teacher you like, I, cons I consider myself super lucky. You know, that's one of the great mysteries of my trajectory in this practice that I happen to just, you know, almost literally bump into Tim McCarthy, who's still active out in Kent if anybody wants to, to go sit with him. I'm going to go there tomorrow morning at, at 11 <laughs> um, and sit with him. But uh, he's... Uh, he was he was very easy to relate to. He wasn't a very standard sort of Zen teacher material, and I, I always say, if if for example my first introduction to Zen had been going to the San Francisco Zen Center and meeting some of the teachers there, especially some of the famous ones, I wouldn't have stuck with it. So so I understand that it can be difficult, and and I suppose my advice for people who aren't lucky enough as I was to find a teacher right off the bat that they actually you know, can relate to who actually works for them is, you know, just, just sit with groups here and there and see what, see what feels right. Because even Dogen did that. If you read his, his little autobiographical sections that he peppers throughout uh, his writings, uh, you can put together a, a trajectory of him going to this teacher and being, oh, maybe not, and going to this teacher. And, and there's like, uh, he mentions about maybe 10 different teachers, I'm not sure, uh, who he, he stayed with for a short time and then eventually left. And, and then he found this teacher that he really, that they got each other and, and that's when he finally, and Dogen seems to have been given permission by other teachers to teach and then refused it. He doesn't say so specifically in his writings, but you reading between the lines, it sure sounds like like a couple of teachers, maybe three different teachers, had offered him to become an, a teacher of Zen, and then he, he just didn't until he found a guy who really resonated with him, and then that guy also offered, and then Dogen took on the mantle and became a teacher himself. And so that might be what you have to do. And also the idea of having a teacher, if you think about what it was like in ancient times, it you, you know, there wasn't mass communication, there weren't even telephones or telegraphs, and, and even writing letters was iffy because you didn't know if your letter would actually make it because it might be, you know, the courier might be attacked by bandits or something. So, so having close contact with a teacher wasn't always something people could do. So, so when you hear about somebody who 500 or 1,000 years ago had a teacher, often it meant that they met that guy a handful of times in their entire life, you know, or maybe once in some cases, uh, and, but it just worked, and 
and uh, and so sometimes that's what you do you know so it doesn't mean that you, having a teacher doesn't necessarily mean you have to go you know live with the guy and, and spend every day you know studying with him but I think it is important I, I think I think the usefulness of it is is having something to bounce off of there's a cautionary tale I think I put it in my book sit down and shut up but um, it came up for me if you guys I don't know if I don't know how much of news this made in America, but I was in Japan at the time. I was in Tokyo at the time of the Om Shinriko uh, subway attacks, when the when this cult put uh, poison gas on the, the Tokyo subway systems in, on in rush hour on one morning, uh, in an attempt to I don't know they they I think they thought they were going to start the apocalypse, you know, uh, but the the point the poison actually did kill several people and injured like hundreds. Hundreds of people still have lingering effects from this, this poison gas they put on the subway systems. I was in Tokyo that day. I was traveling on the Tokyo uh, Metropolitan Rail System that day, not on any of the lines that got gas attacked, but I had traveled from home to, to the office the day that happened. Uh, and I knew those stations, Kasumi Gaseki Station, some of these stations got attacked. I mean, those were places I went. You know, they weren't they weren't like somewhere far away. That was that that's where you go if you want to get the sandwich over there or whatever. You know, that's that's what they were to me. Um, and uh, and so that was real close to home. The guy who did that, the guy who inspired those attacks, was a guy who meditated a lot, also did a lot of LSD, and never had a teacher and there's this weird story that came up in the newspaper about like the Om Shinriko people I mean there was a core group who poisoned the subway and they were clearly insane but it was a large organization filled mostly with people who were sincere spiritual seekers you know they weren't crazy people they just they just got involved in this thing so after after this gas attack came out a lot of those people were looking for something and several of them ended up studying with this one particular Zen teacher who happened to live in the area where they had their main concentration. And there was a story about him in one of the newspapers, one of the Japanese newspapers at the time this happened, you know, like a month or three months after it happened. And one of the things he said was, this Zen teacher said was they would tell him stories that they'd heard of, of uh, Shoko Asahara, that was the leader of the group's uh, different revelations that he'd had during meditations, you know, and, and these people would tell him that. And this guy who's a Zen teacher would be like, yeah, I had those revelations too, um, but my teachers always told me, forget about that and keep sitting. You know, don't get excited about that about that experience that you had during meditation because because the real meat of the practice is just sitting. Well, the guy Shoko Asahara never had anybody to tell him that. You know, so he would have he would meditate and he'd have these fantastic experiences and he'd go, Oh, I found the secret, you know, and then he'd kinda come out to the people and go, Look, I found the secret and then it's la di da di da, you know, whatever it was. Uh, so that's that's a rather extreme example and most people aren't going to go that direction with it but it does happen that that if you meditate alone in, and you know your first few years of meditation are probably mostly going to be boring you know that's that's just the way it goes and often people give up because it's so damn boring but after a while uh, almost everybody starts to have these kind of weird almost you know psychedelic experiences 
uh, around their meditation practice. Uh, not everybody. Some, you know, some people get lucky and don't have them. But when, when that sort of thing happens, it's really useful to be able to talk to somebody about it. And most of your friends, you know, not your particular, but you know, most of our normal friends, they don't know anything about that. And so, you know, when some of that freaky stuff started happening to me, it was really useful to be able to talk to this, you know, elderly Japanese man who would listen to my freaked out stories of, of cosmic awareness and go, oh yeah, yeah, sometimes that happens, um, you know, don't worry about it, it'll go away, you know, and I'm going, but I saw the whole universe doing a thing, and uh, yeah, yeah, we all see the whole universe doing a thing, it's, you know, <laughs> it's just, you know, you get through it and then you go make breakfast and it's fine. Um, uh, so, <laughs> yeah, so, um, so, and, and it was good to have that attitude towards it. I don't know personally how it would have gone for me if, I, if I'd had experiences like that and didn't have somebody who had a, had a very grounded attitude towards those things. You know, I don't know if I'd have gone off the deep end. Probably my inclination would be to think I was going insane and to check myself into a mental hospital or something. Um, but uh, but I didn't do that, and I didn't become a cult leader, not yet. Um, so, so I count myself lucky for having a teacher and having a group around me and having people who had experiences similar to that, you know, who, who could be, who could be uh, you know, like, okay. <laughs> That's what that was used for. This is either a really simple question or a really complicated one. Okay, really let's stupid. see. <laughs> but I'll just ask it anyway. So does Zen practice solve your problems? <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean that's the short answer. I, I, I'm always when when people and that's that's a good question. People will frame that, and usually when they ask me that, they'll 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 have a specific problem that they want to solve, and they'll tell me all about it. And I'm used to getting these emails that are like you know twelve paragraphs long of 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 somebody's you know thing that they want to solve and then I you know and then asking me what Zen can do for them and usually I feel like I don't want to make promises that it can do anything really uh, and and not not because it can't do anything but because if you're expecting it to do something for you that's how you destroy destroy any chance of it doing anything for you <laughs> ironically so the best thing to do with Zen practice is come to it with no expectations. I mean, but, but to be, you know, sort of honest, it, it solved some of my initial problems. Like I said, I, I was, I don't know if I was 19 or 20 when I first encountered Tim, but it was in those years. And, you know, that's a turbulent time in anybody's life, and it was for me. And, you know, all sorts of stuff was going on that was very difficult to process. And the first problem that Zen solved was just an overabundance of, of thoughts in my head. I mean, it didn't, it didn't erase my mind and become the, you know, the perfect void or anything like that, but it became easier to just let a thought go without, you know, just thoughts will often come in the form of a problem that you must solve, like, here's the thing you must solve, and then you're, you know, before you know it, you're sitting there going, I can't solve this, you know, and you're, ah. And, and uh, the Zen practice kind of got me to understand that I can just let those thoughts pass and not solve them. And that was a great weight lifted off, you know, because I can just be like, oh, biggest problem in the world, don't have to do anything about it, you know. 
it, it, I'll do something about it, you know, but I don't have to figure it out right now. Uh, and, and uh, you know, dealing with certain troubling aspects of life and, and, and stuff, that's been useful. But I don't know, if, if you go into it expecting to, to have a, a particular problem solved, uh, you'll probably be disappointed. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't really work that way. You know, it's not. It's not like a. It's not for solving problems. You know, what it's for is very difficult to say. I mean, I. I think what it's for is is to solve a kind of bigger cosmic human problem. You know, of how we as human beings relate to the universe we find ourselves in. I think. I think there's a better way. You know, this this is me being weird, I suppose, but. I think there's a better way for human beings to to do what we do because I think I think that humans are a very special sort of thing and and a lot of people are very disparaging about humanity you know you'll you'll see people like well if all the humans went extinct everything would be great you know and I don't think that's necessarily true that would solve a lot of problems for certain aspects of the environment and and so on but uh, I think there is a reason why we exist and I think we haven't quite figured out what that reason is but we're we do something that as far as we know no other animal or living creature can do and and like I was thinking about this last night when I was watching those bands play and then when when uh, zero defects played uh, you if if you found a if you could put a group of orangutans on stage and have them do anything close, <laughs> you know, to drop the a bomb on me <laughs> or or anything, you know, even the simplest song in the world, you'd just be amazed. You know, look at the level of cooperation those animals are able to to coordinate with each other and produce something out of it, and 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 we have this special ability to do that, and I think that special ability. This is me being wildly speculative, but I think it's something that nature may want, if, if nature can be said to have wanted things. And, and to me, it seems like a continuation of a pattern that happens within nature, as far as we know. Because it started out with these single-celled organisms who were basically all in it for themselves, who eventually sort of cooperated in colonies of single-celled organisms and then those colonies sort of fused into you know creature multi-celled creatures and those creatures eventually evolved into you know communities of creatures and and now nature has coughed up something after millions of years of, of, of trial and error or whatever that can coordinate with other members of its species to a really really high degree and and I think that's amazing, and I think there is probably a reason for that. And, and you know, like I say, I don't like to speculate, but I think there's probably a reason that that has happened. The same as you know, there's a reason that this multicellular organisms billions of years ago started. And what we could do with that ability that we already possess could be uh, incredible. You know, and and this is why I love to read science fiction, you know, and speculate about, you know, what could happen to a civilization who was at the stage we're at a million years ago. I mean, wh what would that civilization look like if they could, you know, overcome the hump of destroying themselves, you know, which I imagine 
sorry, I, I love speculating like this, so I'll just do it. I imagine that once we are able to travel the universe and start seeing what's out there, my guess is we will find a lot of dead civilizations. This is, this is just my guess, and you know, we'll see if I'm right. But, but I imagine that once we have the technology to see what's in outer space, we will find planets on which there were clearly was a civilization that, that destroyed itself. And hopefully we won't be one of those. But my guess is that's probably what happens to most civilizations who get as far as we do. And we have to be very, very careful at this juncture in our, in our evolution that we don't do that, because we still might do that. But I think if we can manage to get past that, there are things we could do. We could, you know, we could potentially solve the environmental problems and, and get things back into the balance they should be in, and, and so forth and so on. There's all sorts of things, but I don't think, you know, my guess it'll be, it'll be if that happens, it'll be a thousand years or you know, twenty thousand years. You know, it's not going to happen. You know, everybody's thinking, yeah, we're going to fix all these problems, and I'm going, eh, you're probably not going to. But it, but it's good if we lay the seeds you know, to that for future generations that, that may be able to, to see where we went wrong in our attempts to do that. And, uh, and I, I like to be optimistic. <laughs> we depend on your donations to support this podcast. To donate, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That's hardcorezen.info slash donate.